This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. As we continue our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 8. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear the Word of God. And getting into a boat, he, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Father, we pray now in this morning hour that you will take your word, you would open it by your spirit to our hearts, to our minds. Lord, we pray you'd feed our souls and equip our minds with biblical truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So said the angel to Joseph when he explained to Joseph the nature of Mary's pregnancy, the nature of this child that was to be born to her. Basically, you were to give him the name, the Lord saves, because he will be the salvation of the Lord for his people. He will save his people from their sins. Well, so far, In our study of Matthew's gospel, we have seen Jesus do a great deal. As his public ministry began, and Matthew gives us there at the end of chapter 4 a summary, and then begins to flesh out in detail both the teaching and the mighty works that Jesus did, we really don't hear a great deal about sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about the severity with which we should deal with our own sin, you know, if you're hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter into heaven maimed than to enter into hell with your hands. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to be blind and enter into heaven than it is to see and enter into hell. Now Jesus, of course, is speaking hyperbolically, metaphorically, of the seriousness with which we should take sin and deal with our own sin. 
But then we've also, as we've moved into chapters 8 and now 9, have seen Jesus' miraculous power at work, bringing healing, casting out demons, even power over the created world, instilling the wind and the waters there in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. But this is the first time that Jesus speaks to the subject of the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, this is the only time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus actually pronounces an individual forgiven of his sins. So let's look at this passage that is before us here, and particularly this subject, the forgiveness of sins and its relationship to Jesus. Well, verse 1 begins really by following up what we just read uh, last week in chapter 8, the end there, verse 34 after Jesus had cast the demons out of these men there uh, in, in the region of Gadara and cast them, sent them into the pigs, and the pigs rushed down, destroyed themselves, drowned themselves in the water. And the people of the town, hearing about it, come out to Jesus. And verse 34 says, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. To go away, that he was not welcome. And so we read in chapter 9, verse 1, getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. In other words, he crossed from that region in a westward direction back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which was the his, his center of his ministry, his base of operations, so to speak, there. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So we see this transition, but let's stop and think about that for just a moment. Jesus had come. He had done something in their midst that represented the coming of the kingdom, the driving out of the demons from these men, restoring them to their right condition. In fact, the other Gospels tell us sending the man home to declare how much God had done for him as a witness. He wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, stay here in your town and tell people what God has done for you. But then the townspeople come out and say, Jesus, leave. And what happens? He does. He does. Getting into a boat, he crossed over, came to his own city. You see, where Jesus was rejected, he left. Who knows what other good works, what other miraculous deeds he might have done there in their midst. We don't know. It didn't happen that way. But we do know in the face of their rejection... Jesus left them. Now, I think it's worth noting that, not necessarily to make too much of it, but to just make an observation. It is possible on a human level to reject Jesus, to reject an opportunity of salvation. And you say, well, preacher, you're starting to sound a little bit Arminian there. Well, no, Jesus certainly saves whom he will. I mean, Saul of Tarsus wasn't seeking Jesus when Jesus came to him and saved him on the road to Damascus and made him the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus saves whom he will. Jesus is the Lord of sovereign grace. He doesn't need you to be seeking him. In fact, he doesn't need you to want him at all to save you. But that's looking at it from the divine point of view. On the human point of view, these people there in Gadara had Jesus himself come And instead of asking for his grace, instead of asking him to teach them, instead of asking him to heal them, they said, go away. And Jesus did. From a divine point of view, God saves whom he will. But from a human point of view, we dare not fail to take advantage of the offer of the grace of God when it comes to us. 
Paul says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time when God has given you a glimpse of His grace in Christ. Now is the time when God has opened to you the door of the offer of salvation in Christ, if only you will repent of your sin and believe in Him. And you dare not put it off, whether you're an adult, whether you're a young person, thinking, well, I can do that later, because you don't know. But that God might harden your heart. But that God might obscure your thinking about Christ. And that day of salvation came and it went. Jeremiah, there's the verse, the harvest has come and we are not saved. What a dread thing to have a work of God come through your midst and you have not taken advantage of it and you have not been saved and you are still outside the kingdom when that day of opportunity, that day of the working of the Spirit passes by and you are not saved. What a dreadful thing. Looking at it from a human point of view. Yes, divinely God saves whom he will. But dear friends, when the day of the offer of the gospel comes, you dare not say, well, I'll put it off. Or Jesus, go away, maybe come back another time. When the day of grace comes, we must seize it and plead with God that we would be saved. Well, Jesus returns and he's there in the town. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, Matthew leaves out some well-known details here that Mark and Luke supply, Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, in their accounts of this, that the house was packed. People were outside the door. People were listening in at the window. There was just no way to get into the house. And the man comes, uh, his friends bring him, his paralyzed man, on on his couch, on his bed there, And not being able to get in, they climb some steps up to the roof and they dig their way through the roof of the structure and lower the man down in front of Jesus on his couch. A memorable picture to be sure. And there is this man in front of Jesus, not really sure exactly how Jesus would react to this. But we read there in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. Not even his faith, but their faith, probably including this man, but certainly including those who were rather, who were willing to take this rather audacious step to get their friend to Jesus and the confidence that Jesus could help him if only he would help him. And Jesus responds to that evident faith and the action that demonstrates it. And he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son. In other words, be encouraged. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm not going to tell you to get out of here or, Wait in line. I'm glad you're here. Your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know what the man thought when Jesus said that. Maybe that wasn't quite what he was looking for. Uh, Maybe hoping to to be healed. Instead, Jesus makes this pronouncement. Your sins are forgiven. And right there, we, we recognize that sometimes we tend to be so obsessed with our own perceived need that we fail to see the real need. Jesus saw this man's real need, his eternal need. Yes, he couldn't walk, and we we know what happens, if only from our reading of the text a few minutes before. We see Jesus address the man's real need. All too often we complain because God, we, we don't see God addressing what we perceive our needs to be, when in fact God is concerned with what our real needs, our deeper needs are, while we're obsessed over what we perceive our need to be. But God, as our wise Father, knows our real need. And for this man, as for any of us, the ultimate need we have is that our sins should be washed away, our sins should be dealt with. We should no longer be held guilty and accountable before God. That's our deepest and real need, but all too often... 
Lesser things crowd that out. We're concerned about other things. Well, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And we read not the reaction of the man, but the reaction of some others who happened to be present. Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes. Now, scribes were experts in the Old Testament law. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as teachers of the law. Sometimes I think the King James refers to them as lawyers. Uh, but the idea is these were men who understood and, and taught and applied and, and, and enforced Old Testament law, which, of course, in Israel was the law of, of the land. Well, they said to themselves, whether thinking or whispering among themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, that's a serious charge. Anytime, but it's a, it was certainly a serious charge in in Israel, there was a great deal of discussion among the Jews over exactly what constituted blasphemy. Uh, there was a consensus that it, it, it had to involve in some way saying the name of God, that the name of God was uttered. It was brought into the discussion somehow. And of course, you may be familiar with the fact that the Jews avoided saying the name of God out of respect for the commandment that they should not take the name of God in vain. And out of a desire not to do that, the thought was, well, if we don't say it at all, then we can't be guilty of misusing it. We can't be guilty of taking the name of God in vain. And so they actually would substitute uh, for the word Yahweh, the name, the covenant name of God, Adonai, Lord, when that name would occur. In fact, we sometimes were split in Hebrew class in seminary when we had to read the Hebrew text. And you actually came to the Tetragrammaton, those four letters, probably pronounced something like Yahweh or Yahweh, that, that was the name of God. Some of the students would actually say it, Yahweh, and some would practice the Hebrew practice of coming to that saying Adonai. It's curious that the word Jehovah actually is a combination of the, the consonants for Yahweh and the vowels for Adonai. So you get Jehovah. But blasphemy was typically held involved the name of God. So there was a little bit of a stretch here with these scribes to say he's blaspheming because Jesus didn't mention the name of God. But what he did do is take to himself the prerogative of God. As they ask themselves in Mark's account and in Luke's account, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this man think he is? He's taking to himself the, the right that only God has. Now, you and I can forgive sins in a relative sense. If someone sins against you and they come to you and say, I was wrong, please forgive me. And you forgive them their sin. What you mean is that you no longer hold that against them. As far as you're concerned, the matter's over with, the relationship is restored, and, and you no longer are holding that against them. But what you have not done is forgive their sins in an absolute sense. That is, their guilt before God for having violated his commandment. And they recognized that that's what Jesus was saying. The man had done nothing against Jesus. The man had insulted Jesus. And then he said, Lord, forgive me. And Jesus said, your sin's forgiven you. Then it's in a relative sense. But they understood that Jesus was declaring absolution of sin in an absolute sense. That this man's sins were no longer of account before God. And they reason, who can forgive sins in that way but God alone? And ultimately, all our sins are against God. Remember Psalm 51, where, where David says... Against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. Now, he'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against his position as the king of Israel. But ultimately, and finally, his sin was against God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
Well, Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. And that set the scribes uh, at least to muttering against him in their hearts, if not aloud. And we read there in verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Now, we don't know if that was a supernatural perception of what they were thinking. Maybe the frown on their face and some whisperings among each other. Jesus simply picked up the fact that they were not pleased, aware of the kinds of things they were thinking. I suspect maybe both. It does seem to indicate there and in the other Gospels that maybe this was their thinking even in their own thoughts. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, that's a strong word. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Well, all they thought was, was this man's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But you see, what they were thinking was right. Only God can forgive sins. Their conclusion was wrong. The conclusion should have been, therefore, this man is God. Their conclusion was, this man is not God, and he's blaspheming. Wrong conclusion, right premise. Only God can forgive sins. But the right conclusion is, therefore, this man is God because he's forgiving sins. But they're thinking evil in their hearts. What can be more evil than to think ill of God himself. What can be more evil, if in a, in a twisted sense, than to accuse God himself of blasphemy? What they were thinking, while understandable in a sense, was awful. You know, Jesus was going to say later, Matthew chapter 12, we'll get to this, that um, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, I think that has something to do with what's going on here. They're thinking ill of Jesus himself. They're accusing God himself of blasphemy. But Jesus addresses this. Verse 5, For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. Now, there's some irony there. In one sense, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Who can verify if it's true or not? There's no way to know. But if Jesus says to the man, rise and walk, he either gets up and walks out, or he doesn't. So, in one sense, it's much easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. And much more difficult in terms of the scribes and the crowd gathered there to say, rise and walk. The irony is in this. It is far more more difficult for Jesus to say to the man, your sins are forgiven. Than it is to say, rise and walk. For Jesus to make this man rise and walk. For Jesus to heal this man's legs and reprogram his brain so that he's able to walk is nothing. For the creator of the universe, for the one to speak and galaxies exist, to heal this man's legs is just a matter of saying the word and it's done. But for Jesus to be able to say, your sins are forgiven, would require the cross. Because that's the only way that could be fulfilled. That's the only way that God could forgive this man's sins as if they are atoned for by the blood of the Son of God. You see, to say your sins are forgiven was for Jesus, 
the far more difficult of the two. But for the crowd, it was the much easier of the two because they had no way to verify it or not. And Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is about to do a miracle, but he wants them to understand the purpose. The purpose is not to vindicate himself. The purpose is not simply to wow the crowd. The purpose is to demonstrate that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. That he has the authority to do it. That what Jesus spoke that they could not see and could not verify was in fact going to be verified by the fact that Jesus could do what for them was the much harder of the two. And so he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. We can only imagine the hush that fell over the crowd as they waited to see what would happen. Because they could verify that. And they did. The man got up. He took his bed. And he left the building. Walked out. Verse 8, the response. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. That's the word that we get our word phobia from. Phobos. Greek word for fear. And they probably were afraid because there was very much a sense of the divine in the room at that moment. Because that's not just something you saw every day. In fact, that's something you just didn't see. And yet they had just seen it. They were afraid. The word may also have the sense of they were awestruck, as some translations have it. They were, they were stunned and a little bit afraid. Because this was so out of the ordinary, and because this was a power beyond which they could comprehend. That Jesus could merely speak, and this this man, who could not walk, began to walk. But why did Jesus do it? Certainly for the well-being of the man. Certainly, as we have been speaking of in in chapter 8, of pushing back the effects of sin in this world, in terms of sickness, in terms of Demon possession in terms of evil in the world. Yes, the kingdom has come. The, the, the kingdom of Satan's being pushed back. Turf is being retaken. But it's not just about healed legs. It's not just about cured leprosy. It's not just about the effects of sin in this world in terms of natural disaster. But ultimately, it's about something, while far less obvious outwardly, is far more important eternally, and that is the forgiveness of sin, the pardon of our guilt before a holy God. That's why Jesus did it. He wanted them to know that he had the power to forgive sins, that he was the Son of Man, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah who has come. And so they were afraid and they praised God. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Not to all men, but simply acknowledging that the power of God was here at work in their midst. And they were awestruck and they glorified God for what they had seen. You see, the point of this passage is this. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah who alone has the power to forgive your sins and mine. Jesus is not interested in being known as a great teacher. Jesus isn't interested in being known as a moral example. Jesus wants to be known to you and to me and to this world as the Savior who will save his people, that is all who trust in him, from 
their sins. See, the day of opportunity had come for this man and for the crowd who was gathered there. And Jesus calls me and Jesus calls you to trust in him, not as teacher, not as example, but as the Savior, as the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many that our sins might be forgiven once and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our Jesus. Thank you for how he so powerfully demonstrates what they could not see by doing what they could and what we through the scriptures can see to give power to this lame man, this paralyzed man to walk, but pointing to the fact that he has the power to forgive sins. And Lord Jesus, you won that right through your going to the cross and bearing the sins of this paralyzed man for him under the judgment of of your Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we who trust in you, that you also bore our sins on Calvary's cross, that you could say to us, Your sins are forgiven. We praise you and we thank you. We pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.